Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you were aware of that. Were you not? Yes, of course. It is a great day to be alive. Hope you're feeling love today, no matter what you're doing. If you're just walking the dog or going to work or doing emails, hoping that you are aware of the goodness of your life on this very plain, wonderful, normal Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day it is that you're listening to this. Hope you're feeling it. I am extraordinarily excited to share this week's episode with you because our guest, Barry Schwartz, has written some incredibly thought-provoking and non-obvious books that are worth your consideration. The two books we go into depth on today are called Why We Work, and the second one is called The Paradox of Choice. And as you'll hear, the stuff that he writes about just matters. It does. And not only does it matter, it goes against a lot of the assumptions that we make about the sources of happiness and the sources of, for lack of a better word, the good, the good in life. He comes at stuff that's not just non-obvious, it's counterintuitive and might explain why, while we follow societal conventions, ends up not just not making us any happier, but it works against us. So I'll tell you a little bit more about him in just a few minutes. But before I do, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to everyone for the kindness, the thoughtfulness that you've extended to me in the past nine days since my father passed away. I was very proud to share again the interview I did with him last year about what it was like to raise six of us six loud children who always wanted more. And I'm so happy that he was open to it and shared so candidly his point of view on money and life. And I'm glad it meant a lot to a lot of those folks who listened. Specifically, I thank you for reaching out uh, Murray Rivas, Amanda Tall, Becca Barnett, Jeremy Hill, Maureen DeLucia, Tom Pritchett, Suhaila. Thank you. Nice to hear from you. My cousin Dan, and Dan was referring to the podcast that I put out when he sent me a note. I'm not going to list all my friends and cousins who sent me a note in the past week. Many of them did. Randy Cates, thank you for listening. Larry Cummings, David Robinson, you know who you are. Mark Copas, Mary Fottle, and David Beekner, really appreciate the kind words. And dozens, dozens more on Facebook and in cards and letters and voicemails. Greatly appreciated. Every week you see somebody's parent has died on Facebook, and sometimes you throw them a sorry for your loss or condolences, or you try to say something a little bit more profound. And all I can say is I'm going to be doing that more and more because I know how much I appreciate it when I needed to hear it. And it sucks when you lose somebody, but the love you get in response is just really, really meaningful. So thanks. The prevailing emotion I have in the last nine days has been gratitude. Gratitude that I got to keep my dad deep into my life, 51 years. That's not a privilege that that everybody gets. And so I am that much more grateful for one, having had a great dad and two, for getting him for as long as we did and for his health for the majority, the vast majority of those years. So thank you to all. Thank you, dad, for everything you did for us. Now I want to tell you a little bit more about Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz is the author of several books, including the ones we talk about today. Those are Why We Work and The Paradox of Choice. And I was very much looking forward to talking to him, and our conversation did not disappoint because it's exactly the kind of stuff I want to grapple with here. Work plays a hugely important role in our lives. And I didn't know that. I didn't know the role work was playing in my life, except for the paycheck, the obvious part. 
until I quit my job and I didn't work anymore. And then I was like, Hey, why am I not satisfied? Well, it's, I'm not satisfied because I'm not doing anything with my life and work plays a huge part in helping us feel good about ourselves. And yet the vast majority of us are highly disengaged with our jobs. And Barry explores not only the extent to which that's the truth right now, but how we got here. And it didn't just happen over a few years. It happened over decades, centuries even. So it's pretty interesting stuff along those lines. Secondly, in the second part of the show, we talk about his book, The Paradox of Choice, for which he's probably best known. Why is it that the harder we work and the more affluent we become, the more depressed we get? Prevailing social wisdom says more is better. So we get more. Shouldn't we be better off? Well, yes and no. Indeed, we believe that more choice should yield more satisfaction. But as Barry argues, that's not the case at all. Not only does more choice overwhelm us, it raises our expectations and makes us doubt our decision making when we finally get through all the choices and make a decision. Choice doesn't just not make us happier. The proliferation of choice to the extent we've gotten it in our country, does not just not make us happier. It actually undermines our happiness and makes us less happy. And this is stuff that's really worth thinking about because it runs so counter to the prevailing wisdom in our country. And let me tell you a little bit more about him. We'll get right to the interview. Barry Schwartz taught psychology at Swarthmore for 45 years and is now visiting professor at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. He holds an MA and a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania and a BS from New York University. His TED Talks on the topics of work, choice, and wisdom have been viewed over 20 million times. That's because what he has to say is super interesting, as you are about to hear. Please enjoy this conversation with Barry Schwartz. Barry Schwartz, welcome to Crazy Money. Pleasure to be with you. Money is crazy. It is crazy indeed. Now, before we dive into your academic work, I have a very pressing question for you. You taught for 45 years at a prestigious college in Pennsylvania. Can you please tell me how to pronounce it? Aha. Uh-huh. Swarthmore. There's that, an R in there that people tend not to say. They say Swarthmore. Mm. Drives the people associated with the school a bit crazy. So Swarthmore. 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 Very good. Okay. Where you can come. All right. Excellent. Well, I'm not sure the SATs I got in 1987 would justify it, but maybe I'll get into the executive program there if there's such a thing. (laughs) All right. I'm very interested in talking to you because you've written many books, but two of them are particularly interesting and I think relevant to what we talk about here on Crazy Money, which is the connection between money, work, and happiness. And so we'll start by talking about the book, Why We Work, and we'll finish the back half of this talking about the paradox of choice. So in Why We Work, early in the book, you quote results from a Gallup survey that concluded only 13% of people are truly engaged in their work. And furthermore, 63% could accurately be described as sleepwalking through their jobs. What contributes to workers feeling engaged? Well, I think this is a key question and it doesn't have a simple answer. I think there are several features of work that contribute to engagement. And very few jobs have all of them and probably no jobs have all of them all the time. But I think it is important to be challenged, to feel like you're learning something new. It's important to be respected. It's important to have autonomy, to have some control over how your workday goes. 
and partly that's a manifestation of respect on the part of the people who supervise you. It's important to feel like you're working with colleagues who you care about and who care about you. It's important to feel like you're actually growing, making progress. And most important, it's key that you feel that what you're doing has meaning. Now, then the question is, what does it mean to say that something has meaning? And that's also complicated. I think as a first approximation, work is meaningful when the things you do have effects on the lives of other people. And they don't have to be big effects. They don't have to be brain surgery effects or treating COVID effects. They could be small effects. But if what you do makes a difference in someone else's life, you have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So I think meaningful work has these characteristics. And quite systematically, as I try to show in the book, starting with Adam Smith and the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century, people have done everything they could to eliminate each and every one of those dimensions from the workplace. <laughs> Not the worker themselves, but the employers or the economy. The employers, large. the funders of the employment, mm. the managers, each one of those things is the enemy of this notion of what it means to run a tight and efficient profit-making machine. And it should be said, what Adam Smith thought was that human beings are by nature lazy. We just want to sit on a couch, eat chips, and watch NBA games played mm -hmm. to empty stadiums. And that's the ideal. The only reason we work is to get paid. And if you're getting paid, it doesn't matter what work you're given to do. And so the more routinized, the more efficient, the more people are just interchangeable parts in the production apparatus, the better. Since no matter what I gave you to do, you'd hate it. So why not make it as efficient as possible and make sure that I pay you so you show up? So he had this view. It was wrong then. It's wrong now. But unfortunately, his work had an enormous impact on the way that, you know, sort of industrialization developed. How dare you impugn the honor of a father of capitalism, Dr. Schwartz? Uh, yes. You know, and he had a lot of really good things to say, too. Mm. So I have been criticized fairly <laughs> for creating a kind of cartoon picture of Adam Smith. He probably was more insightful than not, but he got this one very big thing wrong. Well, let's say Adam Smith had said, you know what workers need is autonomy and meaning and social engagement. How do you think the way our economy has evolved and the workplace has evolved would be different today than the way it has, in fact, evolved? Well, I think that's a terrific question. And first of all, it's hard to imagine anyone saying that in 1776, <laughs> but that's a separate matter. Honey, put um, down the plow and let's talk about meaning and getting these talk crops about raised. And right. challenge and engagement. And all mm. you want to do is rest your weary bones and, you know, <laughs> right. drink a drink a tankard of stout or whatever. There are some workplaces, you see them these days principally in the world of tech, that have many of these attributes. You're given tasks, but nobody is micromanaging. You are in charge of the flow of your work. You work collaboratively with other people who respect you. And arguably, what you do changes the lives of other people. Now, my own view as an old man is that is highly debatable when it comes to Twitter and Facebook, which I regard as basically toys, frivolous toys. It is certainly true 
when it comes to something like Google, which has changed the way we operate in the world, or Wikipedia. So there's an enormous amount of discretion, autonomy in the way people working in tech work. And I think a lot of respect for what the workers bring to the workplace. And they're well-treated. They work extremely hard. I was going to say you're autonomous for any of the 100 hours that week that you decide to work. No, no, no. They work extremely hard. And it's not totally clear how much of that is self-generated and how much of that is pressure imposed by taskmasters cracking a metaphorical whip. The sense I get is that it is at least as much self-motivated as it is imposed. And I'll give you a lovely example. You know, Google famously provides these sumptuous meals at its various cafeterias for its employees, all of it gratis. And about three years ago, they introduced some cafeterias that have sit-down waiter, waitress service. Same food, but you're sitting at a table and you're served. And the question is why? And the answer is what Google HR people were discovering is that folks would come to the cafeteria, fill up their plates, and then take them back to their offices. Right. And they actually wanted people to be engaging with one another in a formal way. And they thought maybe that if they created sit-down restaurants, people would take the lunch hour as a break rather than simply taking the food, taking the fuel back up to the office with them. This experiment, from what I heard, failed. (laughs) (laughs) That does not surprise me at all. So, But that gives me the impression that it really is a lot of this is self-generated. They're so task-directed. They're so caught up in the problems they're trying to solve. Now, I have read about, as no doubt you have, the draconian character of Amazon, which I think is a separate matter. And it's somewhat controversial whether these accounts are accurate. But you do get the sense that there's somebody standing over you with a whip at Amazon, and not just in the fulfillment centers, in the central offices as well. So to some extent, the culture varies from one place to another. Do the people create the culture? Do the culture create the people? And one would, you could say this about, say, Wall Street in the 1980s, and technology certainly since 2000 to today, and tech has never been hotter than it is now. But the very best and brightest people who are the people that worked the hardest in your classroom, you know, 10 years ago, are the people who are competing against other people like them in the workplace at Google, Facebook, Amazon today. So is it self-fulfilling or are they just hiring the best and brightest based on a culture of work and overwork and competition that America has to offer? You're not going to like my answer, but my answer to your question is yes. (laughs) Am I right? You didn't like my answer. It works I was like, I'm going lo- to love your answer. It doesn't matter what you say, but you're right. Yes is a complicated answer. It goes both ways. That is to say, I do think that cultures essentially shape people in their image, either by changing the people or by a selection process. Unless you're that kind of person, you won't be happy here. You won't have a home here. Mm. And so you either get transformed by the nature of the workplace, or the only way you can succeed is by already fitting with the culture. And so I think the hardest thing to create, I believe, in a workplace is a culture. 
I mean, it's just like, how do you create American culture? You don't create American culture. It's organic. American culture sort of is self-creating. It evolves. And you can have an input into the character of American culture, but you can't simply sit down in a smoke-filled room and write out what you want American culture to be and then impose it and expect that people will conform. So workplace culture is a very difficult thing to create and to sustain. And I think you need really a kind of leadership from the top to indicate the importance of a culture of a certain kind. But you also need to make sure that what the CEO says at the annual shareholders meeting is somehow manifested at every level of the organization. So the company has to mean it. I think employees are extremely suspicious of highfalutin statements about what they aspire to as a culture when those principles are not actually manifest in the day-to-day operation of the workplace. So you don't have a bunch of people ready to drink the Kool-Aid. You have a bunch of people ready to be dismissive of these statements unless you actually cash them in in day-to-day practices. Now, what that might mean is that you're willing to sacrifice a little bit of short-term productivity and efficiency by allowing people to be the way you say you want them to be, in return for which, and there's a lot of evidence of this, you gain enormously in longer-term productivity and efficiency. Happy workers are much more productive than unhappy workers, even though in the short run, you may have to make some sacrifices as the person running the business while devoting yourself to creating the kind of culture that allows people to work there happily. So there is something self-fulfilling about it. You've got to go along to get along. Mm-hmm. And workplaces that have particular kinds of cultures will attract people who want to be in those kinds of cultures. Now, all of this assumes that there are lots of jobs out there and people can pick their job to match their temperament and their character Obviously, when economic hard times come, people will take anything that will enable them to pay their rent and buy their groceries. But at least in the history of the United States, hard times have not lasted. So eventually, when things loosen up a little bit, people will start to reassort themselves into workplaces that they find rewarding in a non-material sense. You were going to give me another example of the workplace culture perpetuation syndrome. I was. And the reason this is important is that people can say, well, you know, these tech companies who are printing money, you know, they can afford to do these things because they're just so successful and so rich. But, you know, how's an average place going to be able to tolerate lower productivity and less efficiency? So To me, there's a particular retail establishment that's a chain, national chain in malls called the Container Store. I love it. The more stuff I buy at the Container Store, the more stuff I can put in containers. Exactly, which means the more stuff you buy. That's right. It's fantastic. I think every retail establishment in the country should be subsidizing the container store. That's right. That's right. People will have a place to put the stuff they really shouldn't have bought in the first place. Uh, George Carlin would have a lot to say on the container store. He would have a lot to say about that. Here's the thing. For listeners who don't know what it is, it's basically a place that sells molded plastic in various sizes and shapes so that you can store stuff. And they're in malls all over the country. Now, when you go into a typical shop in a mall, 
and you encounter a salesperson, do you get a sense of enthusiastic engagement with you? Or do you get a sense that they're offended that you're taking their time and asking them a question? Do you get a sense that they know what they're selling? Or do you get a sense that they have no clue? Then there's no question you can ask that they'll be able to give an answer to, right? They seem to be completely disaffected, punching a clock, can't wait to get out of there, smoke some dope, and do something else. <laughs> That's not true in the container store. In the container store, they know their inventory. They're as likely to undersell as to oversell. That is, they may end up giving you less than you came in for rather than more. And they're incredibly cheerful and engaged. And the sense you get is that their view is that everyone who comes into the store has a problem. Not a brain tumor, but a problem. And their job is to help you solve your problem. And if they do their job well, they will have made your life better. And all they're doing is selling pieces of plastic. You go into the store because you do have a problem. And they can make it worse or they can make it better. And if you feel at the end of the day that you've made 100 people's lives a little bit better, that's a pretty good feeling to take home with you, don't you think? I do think so. I think they're giving you the wrong solution to the problem. The solution to the problem is go throw that shit out. I, <laughs> instead of listen, you, you can't change everything at once. <laughs> so what is it about the container store? What do they do to train or to imbue? I don't know the answer employees? to that. You know, I'm a psychologist. There are people who work in management who do case studies of companies. Right. Uh, I don't know. I've been told by somebody that a lot of their workforce is not full-time. Mm-hmm. They pay above market wage, so they're probably getting a different class of retail salespeople mm-hmm. than other stores in malls are getting. But one consequence of that is that their financials don't look spectacular. Mm. So I don't know any of that. All I know is walking into the container store you get a completely different feeling than you get walking into any of the other stores in the mall. My point is only that these are people doing pretty trivial things, not lavishly compensated, working for a company that is not exactly printing money. And the sense you get from interacting with them is that they are happy to be where they are Mm. in contrast to the people who are staffing all the other stores in the mall. So I think it's possible And what's the secret sauce? That I don't know. And based on what you're saying, I think that if I feel like my time is helping someone to do something challenging, to solve a problem, that there's a high degree of satisfaction there. In your book, you talk about hospital custodians. And I don't think this is your research, but you talk about a study of hospital custodians and nobody would describe that job as a sexy job. Yet those employees reported to have a high degree of satisfaction with their work. It's not my work. It was done by a psychologist who teaches in the business school at Yale named Amy Riznewski, an impossible to spell name. But she did the research. She and I have collaborated on other things. Now, not every hospital custodian behaves in this way. Some people come in, punch a clock, swab the floor, wax the floor, empty the trash, restock the shelves, blah, 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 punch out. You talk to them. They're in for the paycheck. You talk to them, they think it takes like an hour to learn how to do the job, and so on. But there are some, a minority, who think their job is to provide whatever is needed in the mission 
of easing suffering and curing disease. They are not doing surgery, but they believe correctly that if they don't do their job well, the hospital will not be able to do its job well. And that is surely true. You know, we're so worried right at this moment about infection and infectiousness. And hospital-bred infections have always been a problem. And if the custodial staff doesn't do its job with care and conscientiousness, it'll be a bigger problem. The last thing you want is a hospital, you're more likely to come out sick than you are to come out well. So they do play a significant role. And they also play a significant role in cheering up patients, in easing the fears of the families of patients who are keeping a vigil for particularly seriously ill patients. They will help the nurses. If there's a big person in a room and the nurse wants to turn the person so that the person doesn't get bed sores, they'll help the nurse turn the patient. So they're always on the lookout for what can I do that is not a part of my job description that will help the institution in discharging its mission. So this is a minority of people, but what you want to do is put these people in a bottle and figure out how you can reproduce them because we wish everyone came to work every day asking that question, what can I do to help my organization in achieving its mission? So that begs the question, is that an individual characteristic that chooses to see their work as part of a broader, more noble quest, like a glass half full thing? Or is that based on management who has communicated to them effectively the importance of the job they do regardless of whether it's surgery or disinfecting? Well, that is the question. And since, you know, many of the custodial staff don't have that attitude, it's tempting to think that what you're seeing is individual differences. But there are a couple of points worth making here. One is that the custodial staff at this particular hospital was not being followed around by a supervisor making sure that they were doing all and only the items on the checklist. They were not so overburdened with the tasks they were supposed to do that they couldn't take a minute to help in a task they weren't supposed to do. So even if management wasn't encouraging this attitude, it was not impeding it. If you come to work thinking my job is to help the hospital run better, it was nothing about the way you were managed that got in the way. Imagine the hospital suddenly is under financial pressure and all of a sudden you're cleaning twice as many rooms as you were before. They cut the custodial staff and now you have twice as many things to do in the same eight-hour day. All this other stuff's going to disappear. Suppose you have a supervisor walking around behind you with a checklist and checking off the various things you're doing and admonishing you when you deviate. Well, then people who want to be this kind of custodian will leave or they'll just stop being this kind of custodian. So I think you need the right environment. In the right environment, the right people will find meaning and significance in what they do. And the wrong environment will beat it out of even the right people. Let's talk about your work. What is the most satisfying part of the work that you do? You've been teaching for 48 years, is that right? 45 at Swarthmore, and now this is my fourth year teaching very part-time at the business school at Berkeley. So, yeah, almost a half century. God, I'm old. (laughs) What do you like about your work? Well, I love to teach. 
I love to introduce ways of thinking about the world to eager young people who really haven't thought about the world in this way before. You know, the blessing at Swarthmore is that it's a very selective place. The students that it takes are terrific. They do more than is required. They get interested in stuff and then they take it in their own direction. They were full of questions that you don't get from graduate students because they had not yet been sort of locked into a particular way of seeing the world. They had much more imaginative, a much more imaginative map of the world. So I'd get questions from left field, center field, all over the place that would just bring me up short. And sometimes they were, you know, kind of ridiculous questions, but often they changed the way I thought about whatever it was we were talking about. So I love that. I also love communicating to the larger world about ideas that I think people should be thinking about. And so I've written several books, as you pointed out, that were pitched not to my colleagues, but to more general audiences. Why We Work was meant for anyone who can read. Five books now that are really meant to engage people who are not academics. Because what I believe, and there's a piece of uh, Why We Work that makes this point, what I believe is that a lot of the way society is, is driven by our ideology about the way society should be or the way it must be. And if you change people's understanding of what's possible and what's desirable, you can contribute to a process that changes the actual structure of the institutions within which we live. And so I want the ideas that I think are worthwhile to get out into the world and maybe, you know, encourage people to take a more active attitude to the life circumstances they find themselves in. And you call that the technology of ideas, right? And, right. and if you would briefly explain that, I will then try to explain the paradox of choice and we'll see how good of a job I do. Okay. So the technology of ideas, nobody is surprised that technology changes the way we live. You have a vaccine against COVID and all of a sudden, everything about our lives is different. You create an airplane and all of a sudden, everything about our lives is different. So we understand that technological objects change the world and change the way we act in the world. And what I think is just as true is that there's a kind of technology of ideas. And the one I focus on in the book, Why We Work, is Adam Smith's idea about people being lazy. You think that people are lazy and only work for pay. You create a factory system where people come in every day and spend eight hours a day, day after day, doing the same repetitive, monotonous, meaningless task. And you know what? Those people are only showing up to get paid. Why? Mm. Because it's the way people are? No, because it's the way people become when the kind of work you give them is work that makes meaning, engagement, challenge, and autonomy impossible. So this was an idea that Smith had that happened to be false that then got embodied in the structure of the workplace. And once it's embodied in the structure of the workplace, it actually changes how people work because it doesn't give them the opportunity to get meaning and satisfaction out of work. So I think this is a piece of technology, but it's not an object. 
It's a conception. It's mm-hmm. an idea. Mm-hmm. And it has incredibly profound effects on how we think about our work, what we aspire to in our work, and what our workplaces actually enable us to achieve. That clear enough? I think so. And it's not easy right away to get your head around. But when you think about it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. There are, however, paradoxes that arrive with each of these new ways that we think. Not everything is an intrinsic good or an intrinsic bad. For example, Smith's theories were implemented by Henry Ford on the assembly line. Coexisting with that was also Henry Ford's belief that in order for Ford Motor Company to succeed, he had to make a vehicle that his workers could afford. Right. So he had the worker in mind on some parts of it, but wasn't really thinking long-term about job satisfaction when creating the assembly line. Mm-hmm. I don't think he cared a whit about job satisfaction. He, <laughs> just to, he just wanted to make sure that people, I mean, I think he was the embodiment of Adam Smith. Job satisfaction's beside the point. You just need to pay people enough that they can buy your product. The striking thing, by the way, is that even that was a revolutionary idea. Right, right. Well, that was post-industrial. You're digging out of the world of Upton Sinclair and all that kind of stuff. Like there are a lot of things wrong with industry in our world, you know, 160 years ago or whatever still are not saying they're not point being, there's a lot of paradoxes that arrive. The work you're probably best known for is the paradox of choice. I'll try to summarize it. You tell me if I do a good job. First of all, Americans cling strongly, not just Americans, but a lot of us cling strongly to the concept of freedom. Taking this to the next step, we see maximizing choice as a self-evident good. However, the paradox here is that unlimited choice, this is your argument, unlimited choice not only doesn't make us happy, it makes us much less well-off. Did I summarize it relatively accurately? And if so, why is this so? Well, yes, you summarized it quite accurately. So there's a general kind of assumption we make that if we identify some factor that we know is good, promotes well-being in any way, then more of it must be better. Right. (laughs) If some of it is good, more of it is better. Ice cream, alcohol, freedom. Exactly. exactly. I had an aunt, I hope your listeners won't mind this, but she was having constipation problems and she heard that eating prunes was good for that. So she ate like two pounds of prunes right, right. and spent the next week sitting on the toilet. Yes. So some prunes are good, but too many prunes, That's not right. so good. As with probiotics and hallucinogens, when you think you've taken enough, don't take any more. Okay. Just whatever. Actually, you should probably stop just before you think you've That's taken right. That's right. That's another matter. So anyway, freedom is good. Choice is what it means to be free. To be, quote, free with no options is not to be free at all. It's a smokescreen. And since we know how important that is to well-being, and we do know, 50 years of research in psychology has proved the obvious that freedom and autonomy are good for our well-being. So if that's true and choice enables it, then the more choice people have, the more autonomy, the more freedom, and the better off they are. Who would possibly quarrel with that? It seems so reasonable. Uh, William Blake, the poet, once said, the only way to know how much is enough is by experiencing too much. (laughs) And I think it wouldn't have occurred to anyone in 1940 that there could ever be too much choice, but it sure as hell occurs to people now. Right. Because choice options have just exploded. 
And lo and behold, when you give people so many options, instead of liberating them, it paralyzes them. They can't pull the trigger. Or if they do pull the trigger, they're convinced they would have been more satisfied with a different option. So they're dissatisfied even when they choose well. And so I wrote this book, The Paradox of Choice, which tries to explain how it can be that some choice is good, but more choice is not so good. And we, at least in rich Western societies, have long ago passed the point where there are too many options. And it's not about the fact that there's 285 varieties of cookies, 230 soups, 75 iced teas, 175 salad dressings. And this is only, what, 10 plus years ago when you wrote the book. And it was not even a huge grocery. It was a (laughs) medium-sized supermarket. So it's not the fact that those exist. It's that the mental process they put us through leaves us less well-off. How is that? Right. I mean, you could imagine. I mean, suppose you like cornflakes. Sure. You go to the grocery. You go to the cereal aisle. You only see one thing, cornflakes. It doesn't matter if there are three options or 3,000 options. You are just like a bead heading to your cornflakes. And so you will be unaffected by all these options. And what economists have argued is that this is true in general. If you're happy with cornflakes or alternating between cornflakes and Cheerios, then if I add an option, it doesn't make you worse off because you still got your two options that you like but it may make somebody else who doesn't like those two options better off. Mm. So now you got three. And if you're happy with those three options, adding another one won't make you worse off. But suppose somebody else doesn't like those three. Well, adding another option will make that person better off. So the argument is that whenever you add options, you make someone better off and no one worse off. So you should just keep adding more and more options. This is logically quite sensible. You'll Mm. agree? Mm -hmm. But it is psychologically unrealistic because most of us, when we see all those options, we start to ask, really, is cornflakes the best I can do? Let's see what what these other, is this girl I went to high school with the best I can do? Let's see what, let me swipe left a little bit and see what else is out there. You know, so it's true of little things like buying groceries of not so little things like finding romantic partners or choosing where to go to school Mm. or choosing what job to take. You proliferate options and people are second guessing themselves after they decide and more often find it impossible to decide. They get paralyzed by indecision. So that's what the book was about. So is this proliferation of choice why I cannot listen to a podcast and shop for groceries at the same time? Well, that may have to do with your limited cognitive capacity. It probably does. It probably does. But more to the point, which podcast do you listen to? We're now like a billion podcasts. The number is this. On Spotify, they've reported their numbers last week, 1.5 million podcasts, half of which were added this year. So that's pretty scary if you think about it. It is. I mean, everybody I know who can string a whole sentence together is promoting their podcast. It's like... Who has the time? You know, there aren't enough hours in the day. If you could inject the content into my veins, then maybe. But how do you listen? You know, it takes an hour to listen to an hour. You can't speed that up. Anyway, and interestingly, in these COVID times we live in, I think the most salient domain where this is a problem is streaming services. You know, Netflix gave us this gift. You are no longer tied to any limited set of entertainment or edifying options. 
you've now had thousands and thousands of options to choose from. I can't tell you how many people, including me, decide, let's watch a movie tonight, go to Netflix, spend 45 minutes trying to decide <laughs> what movie to watch, and then they end up watching a rerun of Friends for the 11th time. <laughs> this, this is Netflix paralysis, and it's worse now because now there are like 12 different, 20 different streaming services. You could spend your whole life deciding what movie to watch. And you end up less satisfied. You have FOMO and your expectations have gone up because you feel like you should be able to make a better choice because of this. Exactly. You've just summarized. Why did it take me 250 pages to write the book? (laughs) My job is to highlight your book and to ask you the question. Well, you did a very good job. FOMO, I assume everyone knows what FOMO is, but it's a big thing. Fear of missing out. Or fear of regret. I talk a lot in the book about this. You know, it's so easy to imagine when you make a choice that there was something better out there that you missed. And so you'll end up regretting the decision. And there's only one way to avoid regret, I think, and that is by not choosing. Mm. So you postpone the decision as a way of avoiding this feeling that you've made a mistake. And that's just no way to live a life. So it turned out I wrote this book. It's a paradox because. Choice is good, and if choice is good, more ought to be better. But lo and behold, it ends up that too much choice creates unfreedom, not freedom. And what surprised and gratified me is that people came out of the woodwork. I got, I don't know, by now thousands of emails from people saying, I thought it was just me. (laughs) Or, Or thank you for giving a name to this feeling that I have every minute of Mm. every day. Mm. And I, you know, I have some suggestions about how to try to make it manageable since I don't think we're going to legislate how many cereals supermarkets carry or how many movies Netflix makes available. It's mostly going to sit with us to find a way to manage what is basically an unmanageable array of possibilities. How do we do that? Well, the single most important thing is to adjust your choice goals. So most of us believe or have been taught to believe that the goal of any choice is to make the best possible decision. Mm. And in the book, I call people who have this orientation maximizers. Only the best will do. To choose an example that I begin the book with, if there are 500 different styles of genes available online. How many do you need to look at before you make a choice if your aim is to get the best possible pair of genes? Answer, you need to look at all of them. That's going to take a long time. Sure. And that's going to make you pretty miserable. Nothing more depressing than trying on genes. That's right. Oh, God. Well, at least online you can't try them on. <laughs> you only can sort of virtually try them sure. on. So seeking the best requires that you look at all the options. And when there are two options, Lee's and Levi's, it's not a big deal. When there are 2,000 options, it's a very big deal. The alternative is not to look for the best, but to look for good enough. That's what my wife did. And choosing you? Good enough. That's right. Good enough. Yeah, I think maybe my, my wife did the same. So the thing about good enough is you may have low standards, medium standards, or high standards, but when you look at options one at a time. And as soon as you encounter one that meets your standards, however high they may be, you stop looking. 
and the 500 alternatives that are out there that you haven't examined don't matter. Mm. And so learning that good enough is good enough is one key way to navigate the overwhelming choice problem. We call people who have this attitude satisficers. Mm. They are satisfied with good enough. I think it's un-American to have this attitude toward life, but it will make you much happier. (laughs) So to a large degree, a lot of these questions around work and around choice are driven by affluence, both on a societal and on an individual level. In what other ways does affluence tend to make us less happy? Well, so first let me clarify at least my current understanding about the relation between affluence and happiness, affluence and well-being. You know, there's a saying that money can't buy happiness, to which people reply, anyone who says that doesn't know where to shop. Right. To which people reply, usually by giving the first (laughs) person the finger. My audience can't see this, but uh, Dr. Barry Schwartz, famous author, just shot the bird to me over Zoom. (laughs) This Not is, to you. This is a life of the, oh, to, to, to one. It was to a demonstration. One. Okay. So, so what the data seem to suggest is that money does buy happiness mm. in the sense that people with higher incomes are happier than people with lower incomes, but it asymptotes at a pretty low level of wealth. So in the U.S. five or six years ago, when this 10 years ago when this research was published, people making 75K a year are about as happy with their income as they are going to be. So, you know, double that now to account for inflation. So money matters. It matters hugely above and below subsistence, uh, which will vary from culture to culture and country to country. People below subsistence are not happy. This romantic notion of poor but happy is romantic but false. So subsistence matters a lot. Between subsistence and, you know, a modest middle-class income, richer is happier. And once you get past that point, the curve flattens out. So money does not do much. And certainly there are an awful lot of people seeking additional wealth long after they have passed the point where additional wealth is going to do much for their well-being, for their happiness. So how does it screw a happiness up? Well, I think it screws happiness up because it distorts motivation. It gets people pursuing the wrong things instead of the right things. If you believe that all you need to be happy is just a 10% bump in your income, then you're going to be organizing your life around the wrong goals. You're going to be sacrificing time with friends, time with family, so that you can deal with one more client and get one more billable hour. This is a mistake in terms of well-being. And so in that sense, by sort of seducing us with the incredible joys of having disposable income and leading us to spend too much time on the wrong things and not enough time on the right things, money can get in the way of happiness. But I don't think that merely having a lot of money makes people unhappy. It just doesn't do much to make them happy. With one proviso, I think there are a lot of wealthy people who are desperately concerned that they will produce completely dysfunctional children. Sure. And so they are worried about finding a way to live their lives and manage the resources that they make available to their kids so that their kids aren't completely broken down, useless 
people as adults. And that does worry. But now we're talking about people who are making a lot of money. Sure. I only have one qualification for what you just said. Happiness doesn't come when you made 10% more than you made last year. It comes when you make 10% more than the guy who sits next to you. That is also true. I mean, <laughs> that's and, the really and, important part of the. This is another point that I make in the choice book. When we ask ourselves, how good was that? How good was that experience? How good is that job? There's no absolute scale that we're applying. What we're doing is we're comparing. And the question is, what are we comparing it with? One thing we compare it with is the job our next door neighbor has. Right. If you have a better job than your next door neighbor, you have a great job. <laughs> Isn't that <laughs> sick? We compare it with the last job we had. Is this an improvement over the last job? We compare it with what we aspire to. We compare it with what we expect. All these things matter. And so another important lesson with the too much choice is to manage expectations. If your expectations are modest, you can have outcomes that meet or exceed expectations. If expectations go through the roof, then it's going to be very hard to be happy. So you tell me there are a million podcasts. Yours is one. Somebody listens to this. If they come into this expecting that this is going to be the best hour they have ever spent in their life, they're going to be really disappointed. And they're going to take it out on you and they're going to take it out on me. So managing expectations is key. There's a wonderful New Yorker cartoon apropos of this. It's a sort of a South Asian, seemingly Buddhist couple in a completely bare room. The only thing in the room is one ceramic pot. The wife looks very unhappy and the husband looks puzzled. And the caption reads, I was at the neighbor's house this afternoon. They have two pots. <laughs> That's so, absolutely you know, true. Yes. What matters is to be making more money than your brother-in-law. So these two concepts of why we work and the paradox of choice are especially relevant to this show for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is because of the life experience that I had that led me to start this conversation. So I worked at Facebook. I was an early employee and I lucked my way into stock options that gave me 100% flexibility in my career choices going forward. Oh, congratulations. Well, thank you very much, uh, because that is a self-evident good, right? Well, what happened was I retired at 42, and I found myself bored to death, feeling lonely without my colleagues, without a mission. And I realized that, especially when it comes to your work life, 100% freedom is actually terrifying. And I (laughs) really didn't know what to do. So at some level, humans benefit from guardrails in their lives. They do indeed. But where should we find them? I mean, it's not the government's job. It's not religion's job, although I think some of the effectiveness and loyalty you find in religion is is giving us a code by which we can adhere and know whether we're doing right or doing wrong, right? So like, how do we find those guardrails for ourselves? I think actually one of the appeals of religion, there's an interesting phenomenon, and I don't want to be monomaniacal about this, but I'll explain it to you through my lens. There's been a return to orthodoxy, orthodox religious observance on the part of people who were raised almost completely secular. Interesting. You know, it's not like everybody's doing it, but you wouldn't expect anyone to be doing it. And their parents scratch their heads and they go, what did we do wrong? (laughs) You know, we're good liberal people. Right. Right. We gave our kids every opportunity to expose themselves to the world. 
and they decide they want to live the way people lived in the 18th century. I also ask my liberal friends who express their open-mindedness, and they say, oh, I wouldn't care if my son came home gay. And I said, what if he came home evangelical? How would you feel about that? (laughs) (laughs) So my interpretation of this is that these are people with the whole world open to them. They're talented. They are well enough educated to know that there's a lot that's possible, and they have no idea which door to go through. Mm. And they know that whatever door they walk through, the other doors are going to slam shut. The joy, the virtue of religious orthodoxy is you make one decision to follow that path, and then all the other decisions in life are largely made for you. And that's not attractive in the 19th century or the early 20th century, but it is attractive to people now who need guardrails, don't appreciate that they need guardrails, but when they see a way of living that has guardrails, they embrace it, although they may embrace it for entirely different reasons. So I think religion does play that kind of a role. I think social norms play that kind of a role. But of course, liberalism, especially in urban environments, modern liberalism, is all about chipping away at a lot of those social norms, right? Right. Your job is to break those social norms and live your own authentic life. I'm not sure it's possible to live a life without strong social norms. But there is a code to progressivism that's all about you follow these rules, which sort of, it's kind of counterintuitive or not counterintuitive, but self-contradictory in the sense that you follow the rule that there are no rules and that your way of thinking is imposing hegemony on somebody else. No, it's true. And it isn't consistent because it is just, it was the countercultural students at Swarthmore who were insistent that they were going to go their own way. And Swarthmore, God knows, is an extremely liberal institution. Sure. Even the few demands that Swarthmore made on them were too many. They were going to go their own way. They moved (laughs) off campus as soon as they could. And it would make me laugh because they were all dressed exactly the same. Right. They were all in you know black tight jeans and boots, and um, they were looked like carbon copies of one another. These iconoclasts who were breaking all the rules were completely conforming to the rules that they had established for themselves. So yeah, it is internally inconsistent, and the problem is that anytime you put up a guardrail, it is really going to have a negative impact on some people's lives. You tell me I can't do this. This is the one thing I want to do. Why are you preventing me from doing this? So it's bound to arouse sort of unhappiness, discomfort, and protest. And so the temptation is just to blow up all the guardrails. And that works okay when there are no threats in the world. When the world is just completely abundant and you're going to be safe no matter what you do and no matter where you do it, then you can kind of chuck all the guardrails away. But, you know, you should not be free to walk around without a mask. Right. I agree. You just shouldn't. You should not be free to go into a bar. Yeah, I'm telling you what to do. Damn right I'm telling you what to do. But, uh, you know, society needs to tell people at least some of the time, what to do. 
I don't want to let you go without asking one last question. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we jump off? I know we appreciate the time you spent with me. Today. No, I'm great. Okay. I'm great. You've asked terrific questions. You really read my stuff. I'm very impressed with that. Oh, thanks. I wish I would have been this diligent a student when I was 22. <laughs> I had to wait well, to 51 you know, to be- look, college is wasted. People are way too young when they go to college. So let me ask this question. What is the current health situation, the coronavirus what is it teaching us about higher education's strengths and weaknesses? So I thought a fair amount about this. And in a way, I think it's not un- irrelevant to what we've just been talking about. We have a model in society that the way to increase affluence, societal affluence, is to increase efficiency. Economists will tell you that the way you make societies richer is by producing more with less. Mm-hmm. There's no magic other way to do it. You know, if you simply raise your workers' pay, all the other employers do the same thing, and the way you pay for those raises is by increasing the price of your goods, then all of your raises are going to go into the increased cost of all the things you need to buy. So you're just running in place. Your nominal wage is higher, but your effective wage is the same. So real affluence occurs when you get more efficient. And we have certainly done that in the world of finance. We have made almost every financial transaction with completely free of friction, very efficient. I think the 2008 financial collapse to a large degree was the result of having made financial transactions so frictionless. And we have also done it in the world of production. So one of the things that the pandemic taught me, why do we have no warehouse of PPE? Why do we have no supply chain that we can count on no matter what happens? Why is it that we were so unprepared when this hit? One answer is that it's inefficient to have a bunch of stuff sitting in a warehouse. It's not earning anybody anything. It's inefficient to have a supply chain you can count on when you can get some supplies at a third the price from someplace else. So this pursuit of efficiency to the exclusion of everything else has made us completely non-resilient to any shock, to any surprise. And along came this surprise and it smacked us in the face. And I think we will learn, at least temporarily, that as with choice, there can be too much of a good thing. Efficiency is good, but there can be too much efficiency. And in the short run, We will probably build up our stockpiles and pay attention to the robustness of our supply chains in the short run and maybe even in the long run. But we won't be asking about this in other aspects of our lives. So we'll make sure that our pandemic relevant stuff is robust and has ample supplies in the warehouse, but we will continue being non-robust and non-resilient in other parts of life. And I think we really need to be asking how important security in life is in comparison to wealth. How much wealth should we be willing to trade to get a little bit more security? And uh, not just with regard to the pandemic, but with regard to job security, family stability, you name it. We've just assumed we don't need to worry about security. Tomorrow will take care of itself because there's no danger. Well, the world is full of danger and uncertainty. So for me, it has gotten me to think more about trying to communicate this idea 
that sometimes security is more important than wealth, and we need to be paying attention to that. So that's my uh, thinking about the world and the self in the face of the pandemic. Well, this has been a really fabulous conversation. It's been a treat to talk to you. I appreciate you taking the time to do it. Where can our listeners find out more about you? They can just Google me. <laughs> you know, I, I try to avoid. You're not on TikTok, Barry? You're Oh, I'm going to wait until Microsoft buys it. I, I don't want to be on any commie Chinese spy. I'm going to wait till pristine American companies own it. No, I'm not on TikTok. And I'm not on Twitter and I'm not on Facebook. But if you type my name into Google, you will get, and all the books are available on Amazon. So I'm an old fashioned guy. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It's been a treat. Been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Barry Schwartz. I loved that conversation. Hope you did too. If you did, share it with three of your friends who you think might benefit from it. And hey, while you're at it, why don't you take a chance to go ahead and write a review for the show right now? Sure would appreciate it. For this week's takeaways, let's go with uh, a few of them here. Call them three and a half, maybe four. First of all, work is a privilege. It's weird that you don't find that out sometimes until you stop working or you lose a job that was great and you go back to one that's not as good. Work's a privilege. Having interesting work, doing it on your terms, and doing something that matters is something that if you've got that going on in your life, hold on to it and keep doing it because that is a real special thing that you've got there. Maybe COVID will help work out in general. Maybe because employers are realizing that geographic flexibility allows people to be just as productive and maybe waste less time on commutes and other stuff like that. Maybe it will also have increased flexibility in other ways that jobs are done. Hope so. Let's talk about the next takeaway, guardrails. This is something that I've been thinking a lot. I interviewed Barry probably two weeks ago, and since I've talked to him, I just keep coming back to some of the last things we visited on, the importance of guardrails in our life, because he says it's the job of religion to create guardrails in our society. Let's take that to the next logical place. Let's say that there's five major religions in the world. I know there's more. I'm just saying, let's just say there's five. And let's say they're evenly distributed population-wise. Let's also say that by nature of religion, that each of these religions has a mutually exclusive truth that their members believe. That's not exactly true, but that's kind of true in the way religions work. So that If one religion is right, 80% of the rest of the world has to be wrong. You following me there, right? So like if only one religion is right, and by definition of mutual exclusivity, that would have to be the case. That means that 80% of what everyone in the world believes religiously is wrong. It just simply is. It could mean that 100% are actually wrong, but in this silly situation, we're going to say 80% of the people are wrong. And yet... People who believe something, who have faith, are not only happier, they live longer. And so, isn't that bizarre that by definition, most people, most religious people are wrong, and yet there are still plenty of benefits to having faith, even if you're way off base. And I'm not going to point fingers at any one religion here, because everybody thinks their religion is right, despite how bizarre it is. And they look at the other ones and go, well, that's obviously fantasy. That's obviously just mythology dressed up for the modern day. But it's not. So it's weird to think that you can be totally wrong, have no grasp of the truth, and still be happier just because you believe in something. I don't have a conclusion for you today. I just 
find that to be very, very interesting. You've got to stand for something or you stand for nothing, et cetera, et cetera. Lastly, as much as we all want the secret to life to be something grandiose and brilliant, I think Barry Schwartz might be on to something when he says that the secret to life is low expectations. That's it. That's it. Like the dude in the gin blossom saying in his 1992 classic, Hey, jealousy, if you don't expect too much from me, you might not be let down. Well, did you just have a flashback to 1992 to like a friend's episode? I did. Anyway, I think there's truth in that. If you don't expect too much, you won't be freaked out when brilliance doesn't happen, when the kind of happiness, the kind of exhilaration and joy you think life is supposed to be about doesn't happen. If you're like, you know what? Tomorrow's trash day and I'm just going to do trash day as best as I can do it. And if there's anything good that happens, well, that's just gravy. That's gravy. I think there's a lot of wisdom there, even if it's as disappointing as point number two, which is it's more important to be happy than to be right. That there's really no percentage. There's no reward for being right. There's reward for believing something, even if it's totally wrong. As Dr. Phil would say, do you want to be happy or do you want to be right? Speaking along these lines, if you enjoyed this conversation with Barry Schwartz, I highly encourage you to go back to my July 8th episode and interview with Oliver Berkman, because I think you'll like what he had to say also. He wrote a book called The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. And as I said in my introduction, when I saw the title of that book, I'm like, I don't know who Oliver Berkman is, but I like the way he thinks, and I'm going to read this book. And when I read it, I was highly satisfied with his points. And I loved having that conversation with him. Go back July 8th, check that out too. Hey, person on the other end of this podcast, listener, I'm glad you're here. Thank you for sticking around. Thank you for being a loyal listener to Crazy Money. It means a lot to me, and I'm glad you're here. Thanks again. Mike Carano, please make me sound smart.